So good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the second installment of our 13-week series entitled The Life of Jesus in Chronological Order. And as we mentioned last week, in the life of Christ Jesus, as we're going to cover it in chronological order there, we will talk about or look at 154 events that took place during that time frame. And today, we will be looking at uh, the first 15 of those events as we look at his childhood and as we're going about the business of looking at his childhood, we want to see if we can also have some practical applications along the way. So this class then, it will attempt to review the life of Jesus Christ in chronological order, uh, fitting all of the events together in the proper sequence. That's what we're hoping for. So as we get started, would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, we know as we will see in this lesson, Father, how Mary was so thankful that you have chosen her and honored her to carry this child, the Messiah. But she was also thankful because of how you've made the way for the rest of us to have access to him. And Father, we pray that as we study the life of our Savior Christ Jesus, Father, that we, we, we start to formulate in our minds the, the, the series of events that, that you set in place, that you set in motion, Father, as he came from the idea of you promising to send him, you preparing the way for him, and the life that he lived to bring us to the point where we will have the hope that we have, the hope of salvation for an eternity in heaven with you. Father, thank you for guiding us as we not only stand here and facilitate, but also sit here and participate. Father, may we learn, may we grow, may we seek things that we can glean from these lessons, Father, to help us in our spiritual walk. Father, thank you for hearing our prayer this day. These things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So in our last class, we looked at an overview of the seven major periods in Christ Jesus' life, and you see them on the board there. In this class, we will begin by outlining the information dealing with the period of his youth. So if you will go to Luke chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the Bible reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So when we look at Luke's gospel here, we see that, that it implies that it was written as a letter. So the introduction explains the reason for the letter, and the reason we see in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. But when we think about this, it's not only Theopolis that he is talking about, he's talking about us too. 
because each and every time we come together to study God's word, we are being taught. Each time we sit down and read God's word on our own, we are being taught. So we too need to know that the things that we are being taught from the word of God, we can have certainty in them. Again, not just Theopolis, but all of us who will read all of us who will understand, all of us who will accept, all of us who will believe. When we look at Luke's gospel, what we find is that it is the most historical in nature, and it contains, we talked about those 154 events from from 1 to 54, 119 of those events, 119 of those 154 events, we see them in Luke. So if you go over to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The Bible reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From him his, from, <clears throat> for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John's dialogue, a prologue rather, starts out with, in the beginning was the word, and then it announces the theme of his gospel there. This is different from Luke, which is, which, uh, in that it is in the letter. It is different from Matthew and Mark. It is different because it starts out by telling the story from, who, they start out rather by telling the story from the very beginning of their book. John's first 18 verses then summarizes the life. It summarizes the purpose of Christ Jesus. It also defines the nature and source from the very outset of the book. Then in verse 19, he goes on to tell the story from beginning. When I say the beginning, I should say the beginning of John's preaching. So when we turn our attention then to event number two. What we're going to be looking at here is the genealogy. 
And the genealogy is important because what we find is that before any action, before any personality is introduced, what God does is makes clear the genealogy of Christ Jesus and, and the order in which things are being set. Now, and there are two things that are being set here that we need to know. It tells us first, in terms of Christ Jesus, it tells us his place in the Jewish community. You, you were a Jew because you belonged to the nation. You were a Jew because your place in the nation was confirmed and maintained by written records, if you will. Number two, we see his direct relationship with David. The prophets told that the Messiah would be a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. So then, anyone claiming to be the Messiah, they must meet these requirements. So Matthew's genealogy, and we're going to look at Matthew's genealogy as well as Luke's genealogy. They're the same, right? That Matthew's genealogy describes Jesus' royal genealogy, tracing it from Abraham to David to Joseph. And thus, uh, we see his legal authority in his claim to be the Messiah. Luke, on the other hand, describes his natural descendants from Adam. They are different, and we always talk about the synoptics here. They are different because the authors chose different people on the list of descendants to mention in order to make his case. Now, with that said, if we... I'd rather, if from Adam to Joseph, and we're using this as, a, as an, uh, illustrative, il, an illustrative number, okay? If, if from Adam to Joseph, there were, let's say, 300 descendants. Again, this is just used as an example. Each mentions different ones. Give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's start in Matthew's, uh, ooh, let's start with Matthew here. So when Matthew lists the genealogy, what we find is that Abraham is number one, and then he lists them. So you go from number one, and then eventually get to 103, 107, 208, 286, until eventually, eventually you get to number 300, and you're talking about Joseph. Luke does it in reverse order, in that number 300 is Joseph, and he goes backwards, 297, 295, 161, 142, until you get to Adam, who is number one. So genealogies are there for a reason. They are there to show that Jesus was a Jew. That's the first thing. And Jesus had a legitimate claim to the rule of Messiah, according to the prophets who said the Messiah would come through David's lineage. Now, after the destruction of Jerusalem, some things happened. Uh, The genealogy and records were destroyed, but the only one that wasn't destroyed was that of Christ Jesus. Event number three, we have the announcement of John's birth. We see this in Luke chapter uh, 1, verses 5 through 25. And as you remember reading that, uh, if you read it over the last week or so, what we find is this right here. That was a priest. His name was uh, Zacharias. He had a wife named Elizabeth, who was a cousin of a lady named Mary of Nazareth. We find that Zacharias chosen for this one time in a lifetime event, and that was he had the privilege to burn incense on the altar in the court of the priest just in front of the Holy of Holies. While doing this, an angel appears to him and tells him his wife, who is barren, she's going to have a baby. 
And like most men, I guess we wouldn't have been any different at that time if, if, if someone came up to us and told us that. We wouldn't believe it. We'd doubt it. So as a result, we find that he lost his ability to talk. Event number four. We, we have the birth of Jesus announced. We see this at Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 38. Now, in terms of a timeline, six months after John's birth is announced, Jesus' birth is announced. But this time, it is pronounced to the woman who would bear the child. It was, it was pronounced to Mary, verses to Mary's husband first. And the angel tells her that unlike John, Unlike John, who would be, and John's going to be something great himself. He would be great in the sight of the Lord. He would be a perpetual Nazarite, which means he didn't, he refrained from alcohol and, and uh, meat. He would be a servant of God. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit. But this angel goes on to tell Mary that, that, that her son would be conceived by supernatural means and that he would be the long-awaited Messiah. Both would have missions. One would prepare the way for the other. One would announce and introduce. And the other would fulfill all that was said about him in prophecy. Event number five. Mary visits Elizabeth. We see this in Luke chapter 1 verses uh, 39 through 56. Now, in the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, from when we read this text, and during the first three months of Mary's pregnancy, she visits her elderly cousin, and she helps her during those last few months of pregnancy. When they meet, what we find is that Mary pronounces a beautiful poem, and some scholars refer to this as, refer to this as the Magnificat. Now, in the poem, she does several things. She praises God. She praises God for his goodness to her in that she has been honored with being the mother of the Messiah. She praises him for his kindness to all who would fear him. She praises him for his help to all of those who were oppressed. In other words, she praises him for being willing to send Christ Jesus the Messiah. And she praises him for the peace and joy that she is enjoying at this time for her in her condition. The entire poem we find is taken from various parts of the Old Testament, which when we think about that, it shows her knowledge of the word as well. Number six, event number six, we have uh, John the Baptist's birth. We see this in John chapter one, verses 57 through 80. So what we find is that John is born soon after Mary's departure, and his name is given as John. And we, we've studied this before where there was, a, there, was, there was a surprise here because there was no one in Zachariah's lineage with the name John. But Zachariah agreed with the name that was given him by the angels, and he received this speech. And then he does something similar to what Mary did. He, too, praised God. Uh, he, too, used references from the Old Testament. Event number seven, the angel appears to Joseph. Now, we see this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 25. Now, what we find is this right here. We find Matthew and Luke talking about the same event, right? Again, looking at using the synoptic approach. 
we find that Matthew tells the story from Joseph's perspective of what happened, and we see that Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective in terms of what happened. But whether you, regardless of the perspective that we are being told it from, we're still getting the same information. That's where we get to this synoptic view again, a synoptic account. They were both betrothed, uh, meaning that uh, the dowry had been set. The commitment to marriage was done. The house was chosen. And all that was left was the wedding. And that usually happens about a year out. And then they move into the house. Before the wedding feast, before the consummation, in other words, before they actually came together for sexual intimacy, Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Some doubt this and deny it. And when they doubt it, they deny it. They want to use several different arguments to make to say that I'm right. They say that, some say that this was part, this part here was added by unknown, uninspired writers, so it's not true. Others claim that uh, uh, um, virgin birth was not held by the early church because they didn't see any, any epistles that was written that talked about it. And others said it is impossible naturally. And so they don't believe in miracles. So since they don't believe in miracles, it didn't happen. But, of course, the answer is that both Matthew and Luke mention quite specifically the fact that Mary conceived in a miraculous fashion. And just like both mentioned that Jesus also resurrected in a miraculous fashion. So think about this. One of those is no more difficult for God than the other. If he can do this one, he can do that one. Joseph is told by an angel that Mary had conceived by the power of God. He would name his child Jesus, which is it's a Greek form of Joshua, which, which means the Lord is salvation. And his son would be the Messiah. Now, like Mary, Joseph believed the angel and followed through in obedience. She accepted to be pregnant and she had the baby. Joseph accepted her pregnancy and prepared to be the father by providing his name and providing a home to live in. When we look at Matthew 1, verses 25, there it says that he kept her a virgin until she had a son. This means that after Jesus was born, she was no longer a virgin, and they did consummate the marriage. They did have sexual intimacy. And we see in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, there are at least four boys named there that are sons, and it talks of at least two sisters. Event number 8, birth of Jesus. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, it's interesting to note that the world, and it's no different today, places uh, so much importance on the birth of Jesus. But we notice something that only one writer describes it. Only one writer describes it. Jesus is conceived while Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She was legally married, but they had not yet been living together. He is born in Bethlehem. He is born in the city of David, according to prophecy. And this prophecy we read... This prophecy we read last week, a few weeks ago, in Micah chapter 5, at verse 2. 
the actual giving of names, and think about this, this, the name of the city was given way back here of something's going to happen here, and that was, that was kind of unusual in prophecy, it was very rare, okay, but Micah actually gives the name of the city where the Messiah will be born, there's a reason for this, historically, the reason was that there was a census, and you had to go to your native city to be counted. So Joseph was of the house of David, which means he probably owned a small plot of land. So because of this, he had to go there too so he could be counted. Event number nine. Angels announce his birth. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Now historians tell us this, that the shepherds, that the shepherds had their flocks out grazing between March and November. So the time of Jesus' birth is somewhere in this period. Is it important? Does it matter? No. The fact, the point that matters is he was born. We, are, we accept that. That shepherds are the first to know is unusual. Why is this? Because they were poor. They were considered unimportant. So why are they getting this great news? They were not part of the religious establishment. They got this great news. They were, however, symbolic of the type of Messiah that Christ Jesus would be. They, they represented the nation of Israel. The shepherds represented those who come and worship the new Messiah from his people. Event 10. The circumcision of Jesus. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. Now, Mary and Joseph were indeed devout Jews, which means when Christ Jesus was born, eight days later, they needed to go about the business of the circumcision. And they did. And a month later, they had to return to the temple for, pur- for the purification rite. Now, there was a way thing they had to do. If they had money, they could bring a lamb. If they didn't, they could bring two turtle doves. Uh, they brought the two turtle doves. They weren't very rich people. And it was at this time, if you remember from reading that, that we have two individuals, a prophet and a prophetess by the name of Simeon and Anna. They were there in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Christ Jesus in. And they spoke concerning Jesus' future, and they confirmed that this child was truly the Messiah. Now, this was done for two reasons, we would say. To confirm who Christ Jesus really was. And also to encourage Mary and Joseph, who were the only ones, to hear this prophecy. Event number 11, visit of the Magi. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, tradition shows that the Magi showed up at the manger on the heels of the shepherds. This is not correct according to the word of God. Matthew 2, verse 16 says that Herod killed children two and under according to how old the child was based on the information given him by the Magi. So putting the verses together, we get this possible order of events, right? They leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. Jesus is born there. They go to Jerusalem eight days later for circumcision. They return to Nazareth to pack up. They go to Jerusalem for purification a month later, roughly. 
They settled in Bethlehem because since it is the city of David, since it is the city of the Messiah, this is where they believed they should raise him. After a year or so, the Magi arrived, a year or so later, looking for the Messiah according to the star they had seen. Matthew 2 at verse 11 says that they came to a house in Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary had settled. They didn't come to a manger as the pictures and traditions indicate. Jesus has been announced to the Jews. He's been announced through the shepherds. Jesus has been announced to the Gentiles. He's been announced through the Magi. And as you know, the Magi were astronomers and counselors to the king of Babylon. Event number 12, flight to Egypt, Matthew 2, 13 through 15. So Jesus' life and movement are dictated by the prophet's words concerning him. We mentioned that uh, last week when we were talking about the things that was happening here weren't haphazard things. They happened according to God's word. They happened according to prophecy. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that section of scripture speaks of the nation of Israel and their experience in Egypt. And, and when it says, out of Egypt I will call my son, it's making reference to here. Matthew makes, takes this passage and applies it to Jesus as he is uh, embodying the Jewish nation experience in his own life, in his own lifetime. He, too, is forced to go to Egypt for a time. Joseph is warned that Herod will, will try to destroy the Messiah, and he is told to flee to Egypt, which he say this about Joseph. Joseph didn't waste no time. When God told him to do something, he did it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good lesson, too. Uh, they could have fled to any town they wanted to, but they were told to go to Egypt, and that's where they went. And they did this in order to fulfill the scripture that was spoken of by the prophets that they had to go to Egypt. The gospel writers used the Old Testament, the scriptures there, to suit their purposes, yes. But even if the prophets' words did not specifically state something in context, the gospel writers would use their words to express certain ideas regardless of the context. This was the liberty of inspiration, if you will. God created the proper context. God created the proper meaning using the same words to express different things. Their move to Egypt was probably financed by those uh, goods they received from the Magi when they came to visit them. Event 13, Herod's murder of innocents. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. So what we find is that soon after Mary, Joseph, and Christ Jesus uh, escaped, what we find is Herod tried to eliminate the threat to his throne, a threat he didn't understand because he was looking at things from a physical perspective rather than a spiritual perspective. So he felt by 
killing males to and under that he was securing his his hold on his throne it's, it's similar to a book that was written a long time ago called the prince uh, where it says something like this it, it talked about how to seize power and keep and how you do this by eliminating your <laughs> the people you think are challenging you and then even to the point if you have to go take out the whole family you take everybody out and that way you can stay in power and that's the way Herod was thinking and this was this was Jesus' maximum age according to the rabbi's account uh, the magi's account now now last week we mentioned that it is calculated that Christ Jesus was born was born 4 BC it is calculated <laughs> okay so so uh, Herod died in 4 BC so this is why it's, it's where people can calculate and say well Christ Jesus was born somewhere between 7 and 4 BC doesn't matter what exact time no what matters is that he was what matters is that we believe that God sent him that's the important things so Jesus was using this calculation Jesus was probably about a year old when he was taken to Egypt he stayed there about a year possibly maybe longer and then Herod died in 4 BC in that air in that range and Mary and Joseph returned so it Event 14, we have his return to Nazareth. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, uh, 23, and Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 40. So Joseph and Mary had tried to settle in Bethlehem, thinking that this is where the Messiah should be raised. So they try to return there after hiding out in Egypt, but something happens. God informs Joseph that Herod is dead, and he can return to Israel. When he realizes that Herod's son is now reigning in his place, and he's living in that area in Bethlehem, he is told to go back to his original home, which is Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is an interesting place. It is a region further away from Herod. That's the first thing. Uh, And no one there expected the Messiah to come from Nazareth. It was a city that the prophet said the Messiah would emerge from. It never said he would be born there. It said he would emerge from there. And we see this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. This was a subtle difference that only revelation could provide. So then we get to event number 15. Twelve-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem. Would you turn over to uh, Luke chapter 2? And verse, we're going to be starting at verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Oops. And the Bible reads, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in a group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and statue and in favor with God and with man. Jews were required to go to the temple for for all feasts. But by the first century, uh, all of these feasts have been, brought, brought, I guess you might say, eliminated, if you will, and brought down to one per year, and that was the Feast of Passover. Jewish boys reached accountability at age 13. But many boys went to the temple at an earlier age, and we see that Christ Jesus did the same thing. And what the rabbis would do, they would find these large crowds there, and they would take this opportunity to teach His parents, as we read, lose sight of him. They find him in one such group discussing law, asking questions and answering questions. And his parents, being concerned, (laughs) they they had something to say. Yeah, but he had something to say, too. He said, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? This shows us something about Christ Jesus at age 12. He knew who he was. He knew what he was about. He knew what he had to do. But when we read there in Luke, in verse 52, we see that he did not look at this from a big-headed approach, but a humble approach. I'm still in my parents' house. I'm still in Mary and Joseph's house. They're still raising me. I am going to be respectful. In other words, we would not read at verse 52 that he grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and with man. So, if, so when we find young people being baptized, and we shouldn't get crazy and think, oh, they can't do that because they're going to be disrespectful to God. No, he, Christ Jesus, knew exactly who he, who he was and what he was about. But it does not say he was ever disrespectful to his parents. But also we see something here as well. When we did a lesson not that long ago on uh, the passion and the glory of Christ Jesus, we looked at the last seven things that Christ Jesus said before he gave up his life on the cross. Here in this text, we have the first recorded words of Christ Jesus. So after this event, there is silence concerning Jesus' early life until the beginning of his ministry at age 30. All we know is that he remained with his parents in Nazareth and he served as a dutiful son until his public ministry began. So, are there any lessons from this particular class? This part, lesson two, gives us little information about Jesus, but it gives us a great deal of information about his parents. Number one, they were true believers. They were true believers. Their faith cost them something. Yet, they continue to believe. Now, what does this tell us as a lesson? There is no faith without risk. What do we risk? We risk alienation from our parents. We risk alienation from our friends, and the list goes on and on. 
The other thing is this. If it's a sure thing, then it's not faith. Something else, another lesson, too. They believe despite their lack of understanding. They continue to believe even though the events around them were unfolding like they were. Get out of here. Go to Egypt. They want to kill your son. Come back. No, you can't go over there. Go over here. We believe based on the complete story, the complete account, if you will. But you think back to them. They didn't know the end. But they trusted the Lord day by day. You know, when we think about it, some things in life are just like that. We need to trust. We need to obey, even though things aren't fully worked out yet. So, that is our lesson for the day. And I do have one quick question. And the question is this. You could do, it can be rhetorical. You want to speak up? Speak up. How can I use this lesson to grow spiritually? And how can I use this lesson to help others come into a relationship with Jesus? Yes, Stephen. All right, thank you. Stephen said we can see the humanity of Jesus. He didn't ex- we aren't experiencing anything he didn't experience. Uh, you might say he saw the good, the bad, and the ugly in life too. And he made the right choices. We will see the good and bad and the ugly in life. We too have to make the right choices. The fact, and I, I say this to people a lot, the fact that, I, that my mother died when I was six months old and I had to have my stomach pumped because by the time she was found with me I had consumed contaminated milk that does not give me the right to say I don't trust God that's not give, does not give me the right to say it was God's fault that my mother died at 18 years of age and I never heard my grandparents once ever say that they blame God for my, the early death of my mother. What did they do? They thank God for what they were blessed with and they raised the kid. And they were smart enough to help him realize he was not going to be a good cotton picker. So he's going to have to go do something else. If those days I didn't want to go to school, my granddad, boy, get going. And I put my foot down, looked at him, and went going. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. I think we can learn something from uh, Mary and Joseph. They were true believers. They didn't see what we've seen, but they still believe. Yeah. We don't have to have all the answers. Yeah. If we're talking to other people out there, uh, if we can't answer any the questions they have, can't let that with our faith. You know, we really need to say, well, let's find the answer together. <laughs> Unless they know the answer, they're just trying to trip you up. <laughs> uh, you know, so I just like the idea. I'm 
I'm not gonna know every answer to every question. Never will. Uh, but uh, still gives us the faith to say we're gonna be true. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, what Brother Cord said was, you know, Mary and Joseph, they didn't have all the answers, but they maintained their faith. We don't have all the answers, and we too must maintain our faith. Uh, one of the worst things we can do as a Christian is say, well, I take it back, come unto Christ. Let's do it this way. Sometimes people come into Christ, you've done Bible studies, whether they're here or uh, uh, outside of jail or in jail, you, you come across people that say this right here, I will become a child of God when I get all the answers. And you're not going to have all the answers yet. But since we're given the opportunity to come in faith without knowing the answers, which is what Mary and Joseph was doing. Okay, you just told me my wife is my wife to be is pregnant ah, but he believed what he was told and he went ahead with business he didn't treat her any differently he gave her his name he gave her a place to live he prepared to raise Christ Jesus he didn't waver on that sometimes we hold ourselves back because Unless I know everything right now, I'm just not going to do it. I can tell you this right here before we close up. That can be deadly. <laughs> that can be deadly. That can be deadly. So thank you all for being here today. I will have uh, the reading for next week, lesson three. I'm going to make copies of that after this lesson, and they will be out in the foyer. So if you want to grab those and read them, by all means, and, and we'll be ready to go for next week. Thank you for joining us.